Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Writing comics about 
the same amount of time. And I reached out to Walter about another project entirely, and he showed me these characters, and he said he wanted to do a story about them. And I said, okay, great. He had almost a dozen characters. So uh, we were off and running. We're published by Marcosia Enterprises. They're based in the U.K., Currently, it's digital only through Comixology and drive through Comics, Danny and Harry, Private Detectives. It's going to be collected. Uh, there'll be a total of six issues collected. It's a single story, a single graphic novel. There'll probably be a crowdfunding for that in a month or two, and that'll get five and six done, and uh, they'll be collected in a paperback and uh, digital as well. That sounds fantastic. And when we first connected, uh, you were talking about a uh, a Western uh, that you were doing that had a slant uh, as well. I did a Western a while back for uh, Louis L'Amour's estate. I worked with Beau L'Amour, and that was the first graphic novel based on the work of Louis L'Amour. Uh, Louis L'Amour wrote nearly 100 Books. Some of them are collections of short stories. They've been continuously in print uh, just about forever. Many movies have been made uh, from his books. And I reached out to Bo Lamore and I said, uh, how come there's never been a graphic novel? He said he'd like to do one. And I worked from a screenplay that uh, he had written and uh, turned that into a graphic novel. The art was by Thomas Yates who's probably best known now for the uh, Prince Valiant comic strip. He did Swamp Thing quite a while back. Uh, Law of the Desert Born is the uh, the name of the graphic novel, or Louis L'Amour's Law of the Desert Born, still available. And uh, it's in beautiful black and white. It's a nice-looking book. Um, awesome. And how did you, you said that your journey started in the uh, 70s. Um, what was your childhood like? Were you attracted to these heroic tales or these fabulous tales as a, a child? What drew you into the world of myth and legend? Well, I remember getting a, uh, uh, a copy of, um, uh, let's see, which mythology book is it? And let me go over to the shelf. I still have it here. It's one of the okay. classic, uh, the classic guides. Here it is, Edith, Edith Hamilton. Yes. Uh, <laughs> tale, tale, timeless tales of gods and heroes. And I was also very interested in the um, Pepla. Does uh, your audience know what Pepla are? <laughs> Of course, we have pe- we have two or three <laughs> peplum shows uh, every month. So uh, big fan, big awesome. fan of those. Uh, the yep, the Italian uh, muscle movies, I guess, is a good way to describe them. And uh, there was also on television at that time there was the Sons of Hercules. Yes, 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 and a Hercules cartoon too at the time. Uh, yes, with the. Um, uh, the guy playing the pan flute was his buddy, if I remember correctly. Yes, it was Newton and Toot. And I believe Toot was the one with yep. the flute. Newton was the centaur who repeated himself uh, quite often. Now, two of my earliest memories are of Pepla. And one would be from, uh, I think it was the Sons of Hercules and uh 
some bad guy had vowed never to hurt this particular uh, hero and um, never to touch him, never to touch him, would never touch him. And so what he did to get his, uh, to do his, his nastiness to this character was he put a blinding hot poker right up to his eye, to the, the character's eye. Didn't touch him, didn't touch him. And it blinded him. And that was a clever way for the bad guy to get revenge, sticking to his vow never to touch the hero. And I thought that was terrifying and and also very clever. And somewhere deep down, I must have thought, boy, that's a clever. I wish I could write something as clever as that. My (laughs) very first, my very first memory of a film being in a movie theater was, uh, I, I was born in Queens, and I lived there till I was five years old. And uh, it was probably a hot summer day, and my mother had taken me out shopping and just wanted to sit down in a cool movie theater. And I don't know what the movie was. I'm still trying to figure out to this day, but it was one of those Italian muscle movies or something like that. And there was a scene where a priest was going to sacrifice a young girl. And she was on a stone altar and he had his dagger raised up. And as a three or four year old, I had no idea that he wasn't going to kill her (laughs) (laughs) because I had never, I didn't really know movies. I didn't know that this was the kind of thing that they teased you with, but naturally something happened that averted disaster. He didn't, he didn't plunge the knife into her, but I thought, She's done for. And this is a vivid memory. I'd love to know what the movie was. There's probably a dozen movies with scenes like that. But uh, that that was my first memory of being in a movie theater. And, and during that period of time, late 50s, early 60s, they probably made about 100 of those movies. All, and then they yes, disappeared. They and I remember seeing Jason and the Argonauts on TV. And that drove me out of my mind. I just thought this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and so that not only got me even more interested in mythology, but um, very interested in the special effects of Ray Harryhausen. I got to meet Ray Harryhausen um, up in uh, Lake uh, Placid. Um, I had a fringe television show in uh, New York City, uh, and they'd invited me to cover the film festival up there. Uh, so, uh, this was uh, around the time of September 11th, and uh, all advertising had dried up. So my fringe show was uh, over, uh, and uh, I was uh, doing a special every now and then. But they invited me to cover uh, this uh, film festival, so I did get a new bunch of people together. And we went up there, and we restarted the, uh, the show. Um, but uh, uh, Ray Harryhausen was up there, and I got a chance uh, to meet him and uh, talk to him about uh, uh, his uh, life work. That was very exciting. He was an awesome uh, gentleman. Uh, then he had to fly off to Lucas Ranch. Uh, George Lucas used to uh, you know, have him over there uh, fairly frequently. Uh, but I believe that's on uh, YouTube somewhere. I'll see if I can find the link and send it to you. Yeah, I'd like to see that. He was... Um... Probably the first, he was probably the first celebrity 
that that I was obsessed with as a kid, and and uh, somebody whose name I knew, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because he was still around. You know, um, uh, Boris Karloff at that point he was still around, but you know, this would have been mid to late sixties. He died in sixty eight, I think. But but I thought of him as as kind of out of the picture, whereas Ray Harryhausen was still very much. Uh, working and I remember seeing in Famous Monsters of Filmland the preview for Valley of the Valley of Guanji, which came out in 1969. For whatever reason, it did not play anywhere near near me. And I lived in a very populated area. I was living out on Long Island at the time, and it just never it never came anywhere. And it would be years and years and years before I saw the movie. He has said that they killed that movie. They didn't promote it because uh, relevant, socially aware types of movies were in vogue in 1969. And, and they thought this silly dinosaur movie, dinosaur and cowboy movie was beneath their contempt and they didn't really promote it. That's sad. And it, it, yeah. Yeah. But I would have definitely have loved to have met him and I probably would have gushed over him, whether whether I was uh, ten or or fifty, I would have uh, I would have still been the same gushing fan. And now you have fans of your own, <laughs> who I'm sure there uh, are there are a, there are a few. Talking about you. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because I had uh, kind of a phase one and then a phase two um, in between uh, when the market crashed in the early '90s. I kind of got out. I came back a while later, and what amazed me was how many people remembered my stuff, especially the relatively short run I had on Conan the Barbarian in the late 80s. And to, to this day, people still remember the run fondly. And As uh, I, do. I did a post. Yeah, thank you. I did a post recently and put up a cover that was drawn by Jim Lee for uh, a story I did and the people came out of the woodwork and, and, and said, boy, I remember that. It was, uh, that's my favorite comic book. And I thought, that's your favorite something. I wrote one of seven Conan's that I wrote is your favorite comic. And that, that really blew me away, especially because a lot of people uh, told me that they felt that um, uh, my version of uh, of of Conan in the comics was the most authentic of any of the writers who tackled him, including Roy Thomas. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to go that far. I'm very happy to hear that. But uh, it, it really showed me that when people like something, they get fanatical about it and it stays with them forever. And if you can build a following and if you can build a fan base and continue to deliver something that they like, they will be amazingly loyal and they will follow yeah. you. Yes. I don't remember the, the tales that uh, you wrote about Conan, but when I saw the covers, uh, it uh, brought back like a memory of uh, that was a run that I especially uh, liked. 
<laughs> so uh, um, I have to dig up my Conans uh, from uh, the bin they're in in the basement uh, and find them. But I recognize the covers right away. And I remember that I considered that to be a very special uh, run in Conan. And I'd been collecting Conan since it first uh, came out with Marvel. And I became very fanatical about it. I read all the books. I read all the, the comic books. Uh, anything Conan, uh, I followed it for decades. Yeah, I, I was there uh, right at the beginning, and although uh, I could not find the first issue when it came out because it was scooped up by speculators, this was in 1970. It was the it was the first time I can remember not being able to find something because it was being scooped up by people who thought it was going to be worth money, and of course they were right. Uh, I did eventually snag a copy. So the second issue was the first one that I read off the stands. And it's hard to describe to somebody who wasn't reading at the time how radical a comic book Conan was at the time because he wasn't a superhero. He had no superpowers. He was not part of the Marvel Universe. He it His Stories took place completely separate from everything else. He lived in a very cleverly constructed and but simple idea for a world, which was a, a civilized world that took place before recorded history, and then sank and disappeared in a cataclysm. So this was this was really a perfect setup, and he was kind of a rogue. He was a th- he was a thief. He was a womanizer. He killed people, and this was this was truly revolutionary in comics. And it's it's kind of amazing that it even uh, passed the comics code at the time. But um, I I just enjoyed it, and and watching uh, Barry Smith. Uh, go from zero to 60 as far as uh, developing his skills as an artist yes. was, was, was just amazing. Within two or, sh- or so short years, he went from being uh, a very obviously talented novice to being at the top, really at the top of the heap in terms of skills. Yes, I remember meeting him uh, during that time at a uh, comic book convention. I believe it was at one of Phil Suling's uh, conventions. Um, And uh, my last interaction with Barry was when I had the television show. He had come out with a character called Axis. uh, And uh, I did a uh, segment on Axis uh, for the show. Uh, So... uh, um, he was truly an extor- extraordinary uh, artist, and uh, he still is. Yeah, his um, uh, Storyteller series for Dark Horse is really uh, under underappreciated. Um, uh, I, I can't remember how many issues there were, maybe a dozen. They were oversized. Yeah, and that was a pro- that was a problem for distribution because nobody knew what to do with it or where to put it. And then he collected um, two of the three series. I think it was the the Freebooters and uh, yeah. Young Gods. There was another series. Um, I can't remember the name, but was not was not collected. But those books are are um, are are absolutely amazing. The the um, the the Young Gods in particular. 
just incredible stuff. And you want to talk about mythology? Uh, there it is, right there. What what he did? Uh, you know, he 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 adds to the pantheon right there. As have you through your work, and what first got you into uh, storytelling uh, professionally? Well, as a uh, very young kid, uh, 12, 13 years old, I I think at the point at which I loved to play baseball at that age, and I was in Little League and the uh, Police uh, Police Boys League or Police uh, Athletic League, at the point at which uh, puberty started kicking in and it was obvious that certain kids were athletes and certain kids weren't, I realized mm-hmm. I'm not going to pitch for the Yankees, but maybe I could write Spider-Man. So <laughs> that, was the, that, that was the thinking at the time. Uh, I thought I could do that if I could just come up with some stories. And... Um, the uh, the fellow that drew Conan, uh, we met in college, Val Semix, and uh, we we did a, uh, uh, a a barbarian type of strip for the college paper, and then after uh, we graduated and we kind of went different ways um, in terms of uh, our careers. But around 1980 or so, there was and uh, bubbling up was this independent publishing Eclipse magazine, which was an anthology of creator-owned stuff. And I thought, you know, there's now an avenue for the kind of thing that we want to do. And so we started pitching stories to Marvel. And the first thing I did for Marvel was a uh, a uh, Jack London uh, pastiche, which there's a fancy word for um, ripping somebody off. Um, <laughs> Uh, and his stuff was in the public domain, but, but yeah, but the uh, the editor at Marvel, uh, Larry Hammer, he wasn't looking for adaptation. So I simply took a um, uh, a short Jack London story and twisted it around until it was unrecognizable as as one of his stories, but it had an Alaskan setting. And uh, that got published in the very last issue of the second volume of Savage Tales. Savage Tales Volume 2 was kind of a He-Man adventure anthology, which picked up on the popularity of um, uh, the Indiana Jones movies. It only lasted for eight issues, but I, I slipped in under right under the wire. It was the last story and the last issue. And then after that, we did Conan. And um, but originally, my my thinking was I I just I would think up stories. I would read a comic or or a, or a book, and I would say that was pretty good. But how about if this happened instead? And initially, I was pretty good at plotting, mm-hmm. but not so good at character, not so good at characterization. So my stories were very cleverly plotted, but the characters were really cardboard figures that were just being moved around the board. And after a while, I figured, wait a minute, I am a person who is alive and living life and meeting and interacting with people. I know who people are and what they do. So why can't I just take that those experiences and figure out how to plug 
human motivations into a clever plot. And the more you do that, the more the characters start to drive the plot. And then, mm-hmm. then you've, then you've got something. Uh, one of my favorite writers is Donald Westlake who passed away, I think about 10 years ago. He wrote a lot of books, uh, mysteries, crime novels, um, both humorous and, and grim and gritty. And he said that he never plotted anything out ahead of time. He would sit down and start writing and just see where the story would take him. I don't know how you do that. I have to, I have to write a premise, usually about 25 words or less. Then I've got to work that up into an outline. So the outlines will run about a, a page outline will probably be about five pages worth of comics. So they're pretty detailed. And are you familiar with what's called the Marvel method? Uh, a little bit. I have the book somewhere on my bookshelf uh, and I'd read it when it came out, but that's been a very long time. So refresh my yeah, memory. The Marvel, yeah. The Marvel method of writing a comic book story is to give your outline your your uh, your synopsis to the artist and and just say go and draw it instead of giving a full script where the script has panel one dialogue caption okay here's what's in here's what's in uh, DC Comics typically always worked in that full script but what Stanley did with Marvel he was doing so much that he didn't have time. So he would just have a story conference with the artist. And sometimes these outlines were very, very brief. The artist would come back with a full story and then he would dialogue it. Sometimes the artist went in directions that were not uh, in the, in the uh, outline and he would have to dialogue it to, uh, to make it work. I've worked both ways with, um, Walter Brogan on Danny and Harry, Private Detectives, I'm giving him outlines. And when I get the artwork back, a lot of times I see that he's done something a little bit different than what I thought I was going to get, and I have to figure out a way to make it work. Right now we're doing a 10-page black-and-white story that we're going to be giving away. Uh, It'll be digital so we email you the PDF, and um, that's going to be uh, available probably within a month or two. And I'm getting the artwork back from him, and I'm having to figure out, okay, I, I'm not quite sure what he <laughs> not quite sure what he thought I told him I wanted here, but I think I can work with this. And the reader should never know when they read the final product that the, the, the writer, in this case, the dialoguer, uh, got something back that they weren't expecting and had to figure out what to do. A lot of times it's as simple as, well, I thought this character was going to be talking first in this panel, but you put him over to the right and the other characters over to the left. So the person over on the left has to speak first so that the balloons are not the stems of the balloons aren't crossing each other because comics are not just stories and they're not just artwork. They're graphic storytelling. So you're looking at 
a piece of graphic art, but you're also looking at something that has a narrative in it. And if you've got these balloons that are going all cross, crossing each other all over the place, it's hard to look at. It's hard to read. So I have to rethink what I'm going to write. I'm going to have to have this guy speaking first, not second. And so I have to rewrite what I thought I was going to write. So that's that's part of the process. That sounds exciting, and it sounds very uh, challenging, uh, uh, too, to have to reconceive what you initially had thought to adapt to the circumstances, and very much like real life, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's always improv. Yep. Um, you make you make your plans, and um, but you have to adapt very quickly, and uh, almost minute by minute. And you have covered a lot of different uh, uh, genres, uh, everything from uh, Conan uh, with uh, sword and uh, sorcery uh, to uh, um, cartoon noir. <laughs> That's a pretty wide range. And uh, yeah, I should I sh- yeah I should mention um, the other ongoing thing I'm doing is for Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, because of all the Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff is falling into the public domain, they're doing mm-hmm. webcomic adaptations of every, pretty much everything he ever wrote. Now, by the time I got there, Tarzan and John Carter were gone, and I discovered that Edgar Rice Burroughs had written an amazing amount of stuff uh, in in all kinds of genres, and yeah, he was he was really the Stephen King of the 1920s. He was selling more books than uh, Hemingway and Faulkner and all those all those literary guys. And the three strips that I'm adapting right now uh, are called The Girl from Hollywood, The Girl from Farris's, and Inspector Muldoon. Inspector Muldoon, those are puzzle stories. They're locked room mysteries where Muldoon has to figure out what happened. The Girl from Hollywood is takes place in Hollywood and the uh, the hills around uh, around Hollywood where where uh, some of the characters live on a ranch the girl from Farris takes place in Chicago in 1915 and involves uh, political corruption uh, uh, involving a uh, a prostitute with a uh, a heart of gold now those two the, those two girl stories are they're pretty much soap operas. They're, they're melodramas really. And so I'm adapting those and uh, the inspector Muldoon. So those are the, that along with Danny and Harry are the two things that I'm doing currently. But yeah, if you look at, uh, if you look at the, the resume, you'll see uh, I'm kind of all over the place uh, with, with genres. I actually did my very first superhero story ever. Uh, just a year or two ago, for a Filipino publisher, yes, and that I book saw is called o- yeah, yeah, that that book is called Oceana, and it's completely unavailable to American audiences. There's no oh. digital, there's no digital, there's no print. Uh, supposedly, there's going to be a um, a movie starring Kylie Versosa, who was Miss International 2016, and uh, the publisher is Epic. Uh, very big in the Philippines, 
And uh, I did some work with one of their artists, which is uh, how I got that assignment. But uh, working in the industry for 30 years, never did a superhero before. She's she's an out and out superhero. She she met, meets all the uh, all the requirements of uh, of a superhero. Conan, you know, he's not he's not super powered. Yeah, he's a he's oh. a fantasy character, but he's not a, he's not a superhero. Um, that is amazing that uh, that that was something that uh, in a in a field full of superheroics that uh, uh, that wasn't something you did till recently. And I believe I saw an image of a costume uh, that somebody had designed uh, in with your stuff as well. It looked pretty amazing. Yeah, the um, uh, the superhero genre is one that uh, I, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I'd be happy to do more, but um, uh Oceana was the first time anybody had asked me to to, to write a superhero. Uh, it's 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 kind of tricky. Uh, I I think one of the problems with any superhero that's well established is y- there's all this backstory. Oceana I co-created from scratch, so there was no backstory. I was given a very rough premise of this is what this is what uh, she had to be and where she had to be and I took it from there but I didn't have to worry about well is this story going to conflict with something else that has been told about this character if you're if you're writing Batman or Spider-Man you've got all these decades of uh, baggage that you have to deal with so uh, it was very helpful that we were creating something from scratch. Will the character ever uh, make it to the United States or anytime soon? That's a good question. I told the publisher I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to act as a de facto agent here to, to try to get it, uh, to try to get it uh, published over here. There's other uh, books they're doing as well. They're trying to create, uh, a number of different heroes that they will then uh, team up Avengers style. So I don't know. Uh, there's only so many hours in the day. I've reached out and told them I'm happy to help, but uh, they, they own the character. So there's, there's nothing more right. I can do than uh, make, make myself available. Wow. That, that must be, that must be very exciting, especially if there's a team up in the future and, uh, uh, that will definitely be something to add to your resume when the character takes off. Well, it'd be nice to see the movie. Uh, special effects would be kind of tricky. And in, in comics, it's very easy to uh, show a character uh, swimming and doing all sorts of things underwater, and it looks fantastic in a comic. Uh, in a movie, it's a little tricky. Uh, under, underwater stuff can be very uh, uh, expensive, and uh, uh, tough to pull off realistically. So I'd, I'd be interested to see how they do that. Uh, I did a little bit of homework on um, these uh, Filipino uh, tribes people who who do this spear fishing. They do this. Uh, they dive with a you know, basically with a snorkel. That's it. And they'll be down under there you know, for minutes at a time, walking on the bottom of the ocean and and. Uh, Spear fishing and, and bringing the fish up, putting it in the boat, and going back down. And I saw some amazing uh, video footage of this, and uh, that's uh, reference material 
that I used for the comic that was very helpful. Rather than try to make something up, I just looked at what uh, what was actually being done. And I think that sequence in the uh, in the comic is probably one of the best ones. It's a shame nobody uh, nobody in the Western world can see it. Uh, I, I really hope uh, that that changes because I'd love to see it beyond the the images that you had. Um, now, of all the genres that you've worked, um, which one is your favorite, or which one do you find the most enjoyable? Probably, um, I w- I would say the the pulpier it is, the more I like it. I I like stuff that involves primal emotions, uh, treachery, betrayal, the kinds of things you see in pulp stories. But a pulp story can really be in any different number of of packages. Uh, it doesn't have to be a hard-boiled detective. Uh, my my approach to pretty much everything I do is to, to, to try to keep that those gut level uh, emotions the uh, uh, the engine that's driving that's driving those stories I, I do have something else coming out uh, I'll be announcing it early next year that's very much in that mode it's going to be done for Marcosia I can't say anything uh, uh, else about it, except that it's going to be a, it's going to be a, a it'll be a crime drama. It'll take place in what apparently is the future, and it'll be drawn in the animated style of the Batman and Superman comics that DC wow. did in the nineties. Uh, there's a, there's a few things being done in that style right now. But I I really love that stuff, and um, I thought it might be a good idea. And and that came to me kind of late in, in thinking about this character. It was kind of a last-minute decision to have it drawn in that style. And uh, I have an artist that uh, lives in a foreign land who's going to be drawing that. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to announce who that is yet, but... Um, uh, that'll that'll be pretty interesting. Uh, that'll be uh, the third really uh, project I've done for Marcosia. They've been great. They pretty much leave me alone. They, I show them a proposal, and they say that looks good. Deliver it when you can. That's a great thing. Yeah, no interference, no interference whatsoever. Although uh, this is kind of funny when they told me that they wanted to show Danny and Harry to overseas markets, they wanted a a set of drawings of the characters that uh, didn't have them smoking cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) for some of the, for some of, for some of the middle Eastern countries that they're trying to market in. And so Walter uh, did two sets of uh, character sketches for uh, the, the marketing purposes, uh, with and without cigarettes, kind of kind of funny, you know. Because if you look at the book, it looks like it takes place in 1948 in New York. The cars right. look like that. The, the way the characters dress, and everybody is smoking and drinking constantly. 
And it looks great in a comic. Smoking and drinking look great in comics. But, uh, yeah, they said for uh, for that market, uh, the Middle Eastern market, uh, you're going to have to get rid of the cigarettes. And he didn't say anything about the uh, the alcohol, although you would think that would have to go, too. <laughs> well, cigarettes, I remember I used to work in hospitals uh, during uh, uh, part of my uh, journey. Uh, and uh, I remember back in the 80s and even the early 90s, you could smoke in hospitals. So, you know, I used to smoke very heavily back then. And even uh, when I was trying to emergency rooms, you know, I was smoking, doctors were smoking, everybody was smoking. So totally different world uh, back then in, in that regard. You know, you talk about um, uh, your, your journey. And uh, my uh, my younger daughter told me something recently that she claims I said, and I thought, boy, that that was pretty wise of me to tell you that at whatever age I said. And, uh, but I don't remember saying what I told her was everybody has to find their own path. Yes. And I really believe that. I think there are some rules that everybody has to follow, but you, if you look at where you are at any point in your life, you realize you've, you have followed your own path mm-hmm. for good or for good or bad, for better or worse. And maybe you want to change that path a little bit, or maybe you think you're on the right path, but everybody has to get that machete out and hack their own way through the wilderness. And that experience is going to be a little bit different and sometimes very different for everybody. And I was going to ask, the question I was going to ask you, because we're approaching the end of today's journey, was if you had any words of wisdom to offer to our listeners. And you uh, jumped the gun and offered them uh, really great. (laughs) It's very, very true. Um, How can people follow you and learn more about you and enter the um, wonderful new universes uh, you've created or contributed to? Well, what I have found is that – Promoting yourself with social media, it takes as much, if not more, time than um, than actually creating. But probably right. the best way at the mo- the best way at the moment would be my Facebook page. Uh, if you look for Charles Santino, you'll see it. There is a Danny and Harry uh, Facebook page as well. Danny and Harry Private Detectives. Uh, a combination of those two pages probably the best way. I have a Twitter account. I don't do anything with it. I, I have an Instagram do account. I. I don't do I don't I don't do anything with it. Neither do I. But Facebook, <laughs> yeah, but the, those two Facebook pages, that's the way to go. Danny and Harry uh, available right now on Comicsology and Drive Through Comics. Uh, look for the freebie that's coming up soon, the ten page uh, free black and white comic, and that that's a good introduction because it's a complete story in ten pages. And I wrote it in such a way that I wanted to make sure that if you have never heard of these characters before, and this is the only thing and the first thing you read about them, you'll get everything you need in this ten, in this ten page story. And I have included uh, a link to your Facebook page and also to the Danny and Harry private detectives in uh, the thread that uh, talks about uh, today's uh, segment. So for those who thank are following- you so much. Just go there. And I want to thank you very much. I enjoyed myself uh, greatly speaking with 
you, and uh, you definitely have to come back because we barely scratched uh, the surface uh, today. Uh, I wish you success in all your new in- endeavors and celebrate all your old endeavors. And, and thank you for helping us launch this new segment, uh, Myths, Legends, and Lore. Thanks a lot. I told a friend of mine I'd be doing this, and he's a fan of Pepla, and he said, you, you must tell Hercules, you must exclaim, by the gods. <laughs> which you which you'll hear in every one of those movies. So I got it. I got yeah. it out there. Well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, tell your friend that I use that expression in real life, uh, uh, not uh, continuously, but fairly often. <laughs> I have no doubt. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Be well, Charles, and uh, have an awesome day. You too. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye bye. Um, we are going to listen to Bone Poets Orchestra's Evolve, and then we'll be back with another new segment. Nick Cardo presents The Real World Revealed. Thank you. 
the Illuminati Ten Commandments. Well, have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Oh, boy. Well, you know, most people haven't. And I think that a lot of this hinges on this huge multi-million dollar granite monument. Um, it's in Georgia, uh, Elbert County, to be exact, uh, in a remote place. And it stands this huge granite monument and engraved in eight different languages. Think of that, eight different languages on four giant stones that support the common capstone uh, are ten guides or commandments. Uh, the monument is uh, alternately referred to as the Georgia uh, Guidestones or the American Stonehenge, which is a very strange uh, uh, way to, to, to see what this is because what it is is a Illuminati uh, blueprint for what they want to do to the world, to everybody in the world. They have enough money and power, uh, they think, and the, the right, which they think they have, to do this. And so they are, uh, in, in a very aggressive way, doing all of the things that I'm going to tell you about. And um, okay. it's, it's uh, an occult hierarchy that dominates the world in which we live. Um, a lot of people don't even know that the, uh, this exists or they don't know what the agenda is. But the agenda is happening to every man, woman, and child right now. And so not only for our own selves to know and try to protect ourselves, but for the children and the generations to come, they need to be aware of this and we need to stop what's going on. Yeah, uh, mo most certainly so. And raising awareness is the uh, first uh, step. Uh, one of the topics that's been coming up a lot uh, lately is that uh, this entire period of uh, time uh, that we find ourselves in, uh, it has made information very untrustworthy. And whereas before, even though we differed on, you know, what we might be believe about things uh, to one degree or another, there were at least sources of information that we considered to be reliable. And now that's been taken away uh, from us. Uh, and it seems quite deliberately that uh, we're made to mistrust the uh, information. So uh, I'm sure whatever the problem was before, it's gotten a lot worse now where you don't know who to believe or what to believe anymore. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and it's, it's, it's a cause for much concern. And I remember when we used to uh, trust and respect uh, a newsman such as a Walter Cronkite, that mm -hmm. when he, Walter would say something, we believed him, absolutely. Walter was our friend. He was the great source of the real news, and we wouldn't even question that because we just trusted him so much. Well, we don't have Walter Cronkite's anymore, unfortunately, no. certainly not in the mainstream news. Um, I, and that's sad, and that's alarming, and we don't have people like that. We have people that are simply reading teleprompters of what they want these people to say. I know. That's very unfortunate. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling, and it's very sad and alarming because – who do you trust? Certainly not the mainstream media. And they've been losing a lot of viewers, as we all know now. The numbers are way down because people are beginning to wake up. And what they're doing now is looking for alternate sources of, uh, instead of mainstream news, 
where we can look for probably what is really going on and having someone tell us, take a look at this, or we have photographs and we'll show you this on the Internet. So the Internet is becoming a huge tool for change and for, for truth. Now, not everything on the Internet is true. Uh, we all know that. But a lot of it is, and after a while you get to realize, and you, even your gut will tell you what is going on and who you can trust. And this is taking on big numbers now, bigger numbers every single day. And that is a good sign. People are waking up. Yeah, and I hope they continue to wake up because uh, the information that uh, is being given to us is uh, phenomenally disturbing uh, and uh, a lot of uh, even uh, traditional newscasters are remarking that we seem to be in an alternate reality. And that impression, because that's what I felt in my bones from the beginning, that uh, we're in some sort of alternate reality. And now we hear a lot of people, even people you wouldn't expect to be saying this, uh, saying it. So uh, it just reinforces that, you know, maybe we are in some sort of alternate reality. Well, we are, and we're in a situation that we are being dealt with. We are being played, and and you you after a while you get to realize that's what's going on, and it's insulting, it's scary, and it shouldn't happen, and it is, and people more people need to wake up and realize this, and that is the hope, is that when we start identifying what's going on, uh, to us aggressively, uh, both uh, uh, to ruin our health. And believe me, there's going to be a lot of information on that, as well as morally and spiritually, what is going on to hurt us in that way? And why would they be doing this? That's the question. That is the question. It's a very important question. And uh, uh, a lot of uh, times I'll hear people agree with uh, what uh, some of the elites are saying. And uh, I will point out to them that uh, the population that they think shouldn't exist includes us. <laughs> so <laughs> be careful. Be careful who you agree with, because they certainly don't want you, uh, you know, to be there when they cleanse the earth and uh, reduce the population and uh, do all these things that they're they're stating, as you said before, quite openly, uh, that they want to do. And, and fear is, a, is a getting to be a part of this. People are, some people, not all, thank God, but a lot of people are in fear of, of finding the truth. Uh, they, they almost don't want to see it because they know it's bad and really bad. And so rather than deal with that, uh, some people tend to look away. Maybe it will just go away by itself. That, that's the feeling. Well, it's not going to go away by itself. It's only going to go away if we wake up and identify it and stop it. And we can do that uh, as a people. And I'm talking worldwide. We can do this and we have to do this. And doesn't it feel to you that things are coming to a point now of no return? We're either going to do this or we're not. Don't you have a feeling like that? Um, I have a very great sense of urgency that uh, permeates everything in my consciousness right now, uh, and it's had two effects. One is it has galvanized me for taking action, um, and I've been doing a lot more than I normally do, which is a lot. And the other is uh, uh, trying to appreciate each and every passing moment. Uh, it's uh, made me aware of the uh, 
the the fleeting nature of time of my own mortality and of uh, of the transience of everything so while it's still here and while i'm still here uh, it has greatly increased my appreciation uh, for the people for the um, uh, stories even that i love that i live in um, it's made me very acutely aware uh, of them so it's had kind of like that double effect on me well, I couldn't agree with you more. That's exactly, we're on the same page. And there's a lot of people now on that page also. And that's the hope that we're seeing what's going on. We, we, we don't want to tolerate what's going to hurt us as a nation, as a people, as, as people who want good health for ourselves and our children and the, our children's children. Um, and, and this is coming to a point now. And I think it's a very exciting time also. I can't right. imagine that we're living in a in, in a time that is probably the height of a turning point, uh, not only for America but for the world. I agree. So it's again, it's an exciting time. It's a time to look around, uh, see what's going on, identify it, uh, tell our representatives that we won't stand for this anymore that we want them to change things. And I have some very specific uh, uh, items here on my list that I'm going to be doing tonight about what, what the items are that we should be not only aware of, but we should be spreading the word and asking our representatives and our health department for help. That's their job. Yes. And uh, I have found, uh, so I can personally vouch for this, that if you make a telephone call or write a letter, you will get a response. And that uh, even though different approaches work for different offices, like I found out that if you want something to count with the governor's office in uh, New Jersey, uh, you should write a letter. Uh, in other places, an email is sufficient or a, a telephone call. So it's different for you know, every uh, office, but it does have an effect because for each person that calls and expresses their uh, concern or voices their opinion, uh, because only a small percentage of the population uh, does that, uh, each call represents uh, um, a certain number of people who did not speak up. So they get a sense of what people are feeling and thinking uh, by these uh, uh, contacts. So it's a very important thing to contact your representatives uh, and let them know, you know your approval, your disapproval, your concerns. Uh, and I've received very detailed letters, some pages long, uh, as a result of doing this. So uh, I'm sure others people will find the same. Well, it's important. Uh, it's important for all of us. And we can all do this. And using the Internet for this reason is also a powerful tool that uh, just about everybody, every household has a laptop or computer. And uh, that's a powerful tool for communication and change. And we, we need to employ that tool. Uh, we need to we need to make other people aware, our friends, our family, um, our neighbors, the people we work with. But if we go to church or synagogue or a temple, we need to talk about this to them. Why? Because we love them and we want to protect them. And the whole this whole idea is protection, and I really mean that protection for for ourselves and all the people that we love worldwide. Oh, I'm in great uh, agreement. And uh, um, in fact, uh, I was going to call uh, you and uh, the other people in our uh, celestial outreach uh, this weekend because a lot of new things have happened. 
and uh, I'd love to share them and uh, see if we can uh, uh, respond uh, to these uh, changes. But you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a time that we need to change for the better, and uh, we, we the time is up. In other words, we need to do this now, not not next week, not next year. We need to do it now, and now. I think that people will be empowered to do it. I really do believe that. Um, I've had some uh, wins here in New York City uh, by by saying certain things on the internet and getting people uh, contacting me and saying, Nick, I had no idea this was going on. What can I do? And when I hear that, it's like music to my ears because that means they get it and they're willing to do something on their own to help the situation. And I've had five calls today on a particular issue saying, I, ne- I did not know that was happening. What can I do? Who can I write to? And who can I call? And God bless those people because they're caring and they want the best for themselves and for their families and friends. And they care. That's the whole point. Yes, and uh, that is a very good uh, um, emotion uh, to uh, act from, the fact that uh, you care and that you're concerned uh, for yourself, for your loved ones, for your communities, uh, however you define them, and for our planet as a whole. And if you believe in uh, celestials or extraterrestrials or deities uh, beyond uh, this earth that we all share, you know, to to the solar system and uh, the universe uh, beyond. So a lot is at stake and the future will judge us on what we do or don't do uh, during this very uh, pivotal time. Oh, I think you're absolutely right on that. They will. And that's why uh, we need we need to get going. We need to uh, intensify our efforts. And um, what I'm going to do now, uh, the next half hour, is identify uh, four or five particular points that I want to start off this with. Uh, that they I just want to get briefly touch upon these various areas, these various items, and just put them on the table for people. Okay, that sounds awesome to me. Okay, so um, if we can start, then we can start with the real news revealed. And um, the first thing I'm going to say is, uh, and this is a huge subject, and I'm only going to talk a few minutes on it, but I want to put it on the table for everyone. Um, people uh, have, uh, who are high up and trusted have said, we can take ETs home right now if we wanted to. And when, we, when that first came out, I, it stopped me cold. We can take ETs home. And what does that mean? That means a technology that we think we know, that we think NASA has, is really uh, maybe 50 years behind what they really have. Now, yes. why would that be? Why would they do that? Because they don't want us to know. And that, that's, it's crazy in a way, but it's true. They don't want us to know. And I've some very uh, specific people who have been in the ranks of doing these projects have said, you have no idea how advanced the technology really is. And it's owned by the private companies. They have owned, they dictate what's going on and who can know what and who is, what is being done. And so the, so the statement we can take ETs home is, is phenomenal. So in other words, we're, we're still looking to, to try to go to the moon again 
and possibly Mars in a few years. Perhaps we can do that. And they're working on this. And that's what the general narrative is. But the people inside are saying, that's total BS. We can do so much more than that. And we have been doing it for a good 45, 50 years. Now, that, that's, that's an amazing statement to make. Um, yeah. Are ETs, are ETs uh, out there? You bet. Are they here? A lot of people say, yes, they are. And they are in very specific places in the world. And the governments know about it. And the communication has been there for many, many years. Uh, and there's a lot of stories about this. And sometimes uh, during the po- these podcasts, I will identify one particular area and go into very deep detail. I want to put it on the table that full disclosure of UFO ET contact that governments know about must be done. And it's time that uh, we are put uh, in, in knowledge of what has been done and what's going on right now. It's a huge area. It, it involves new technologies. Uh, and by the way, uh, cold and oil and um, uh, uh, gas uh, are archaic compared to what the new fuels are. And they know about them. And they're keeping those things from us because people want to keep making trillions of dollars every single year by uh, their, these old methods. Now, what it's doing to our planet is diminishing all of our natural resources. And do we have to do that to get energy? No, we do not. Definitely not. There's better techniques. Some of them have been uh, found out by uh, crashed UFO uh, ships, and the technology has been learned and duplicated. And new forms of energy are, are there, and they're being covered up, uh, aggressively covered up. That's got to change. Uh, again, I'm going to go again very quickly to the Georgia Guidestones, the Illuminati Ten Commandments, because a lot of this, uh, what I'm going to identify, stems from this, this, this plan, this, this crazy, crazy plan that is funded by limitless amounts of money. Um, one of the, the biggest things they have on the, in the Georgia Capstones, this is the planet of what they want to do, is um, 500 million people will remain on the planet. The rest of the people, get ready, must be killed. Must be killed. Think of that. That is in granite. It's carved, uh, engraved on these granite, uh, huge, huge uh, monuments, stones, and they're saying that that is our plan. It's right out there, and that's part of the part of what they do. They say ahead of time what they're planning to do, and then somehow they feel as though, well, we've already told them what they're going to do, so they're fools if they if they don't listen to it and act upon it. And that's part of what their their society does. It says we're going to put it out there. We're going to put it in their face, and, and they're not going to know what's going on. Uh, but but we've, we actually put it out there so now we can do it. It, it's, it sounds crazy, but it's true. So how is this being done? Well, it's being done through the air, the sea, and the land, as well as by reducing our need for spirituality, uh, a, a need to, to, to know who we are and what is available to us. Now, one of the first things I'm going to put out is the, and we've talked briefly about this before, the huge multi-trillion dollar push 
worldwide for 5G and smart meters uh, that have, and it's been proven, major health problems. Now, with that knowledge of major health problems, why would they possibly push this technology out there? And they've convinced a lot of people that it's a good thing because you can get faster communication. But what good is that if you're dying of cancer? What good is that if your children are dying or or being hurt mentally by the waves that are going through their homes and through their brains? Uh, And and that's part of this whole uh, problem is that this technology is, is, is going out and uh, the elite are uh, uh, compulsive about pushing this out there. Um, they think that they're, by, by saying that it's good for us, that it's going to be better communication, uh, but, but we don't have a choice here, right? They just go ahead and put up the antennas and push this technology on us, whether we like it or not. Um, this is wrong, and it must be stopped. There are groups uh, worldwide that want to stop it. And there are some uh, places in the world that have said, don't you dare put this in our, in our air. We don't want it. So, yes, it can be stopped, but it's going to take a lot of people to say, we don't want this technology that's going to hurt us. I'm going to go now to another area that seems like it's uh, innocent enough, but it, it really isn't. And that's the music industry aggressively embracing Luminati satanic symbols and that happens in the costumes their dance routines their sets and even their lighting design um horns of big eyes watching uh, you that are like 20 feet in on the stage uh, people wearing double costumes fire all over the stage uh symbolic killing uh, cruel behavior and evil portrayal are, are part of the dance routine torture uh, wild sex acts on stage. You see skulls and blood dripping down. Hello, what happened to entertainment? What in the world is driving this? And it's being put in front of all of us, especially the youth that are seeing this every single day. Look at some of the hand symbols that you see the entertainers do during the, the, when they're doing their performance or when they're taking their bows. Watch their hands, and you're thinking, why are they doing these strange motions with their fingers? Well, it's Illuminati symbols, and it's honoring, are you ready, the devil. That's what it's for. And it's saying to everybody else, we are part of the evil that's going on, and we worship Satan. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what's going on. And if you look at some of these, uh, like MTV Awards or any of these, you're going to see that. And these are the major stars of the music industry. Uh, is it shocking? Yes. Does it need to be looked at? Yes. Uh, whatever happened to goodness, love, compassion, caring, helping one another, uh, the light, the truth, the hope, what happened to these goals? Why is it now everything is satanic and evil and killing? And these are the music. <laughs> this is the music and dances that we're seeing. Uh, the, it's an elite, ruthless uh, social agenda, uh, and it's, it's really it's sad. Um, I'm going to go to another thing now about the sea and about the big business uh, who should be using biodegradable plastics to stop the pollution of the world's oceans and land. Um, it's, uh, it's all about the lakes, the oceans, 
uh, in remote places all over the world, plastics that are in our food and in our water. Yes, in our food and in our water. Now, how does that happen? Because these plastics disintegrate into small particles, and they're picked up uh, by air and, and by the oceans and uh, the crops that are on the land. And eventually, it's coming into our water and food. And uh, studies have been shown that these little plastic molecules are, are part of what's going on with our own food. And this is worldwide. Uh, the plastics are all over the world. They disintegrate. Fishermen were catching fish, but the fish have eaten the plastics. So then everybody eats the fish, and the plastics are in us. Is this a health risk? You bet. Does it need to be stopped? Absolutely. Now I want to go to another uh, particular area that is really quite, quite sad in a way, and that is the massive chemtrails in our skies, not only in New York, New Jersey, uh, 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 everywhere, uh, Connecticut, uh, all, of the, all the states, uh, Canada, South America, and all over Europe. Uh, photographs of these white chemtrails in the skies. And a lot of people say, oh, you don't have to worry. It's simply water vapor from the jets. Well, maybe that was true maybe 20 or 30 years ago. But you see, water vapor uh, will disappear in the skies in about four or five minutes because water vapor won't stay there. Now, if you notice these white trails, these white trails, huge trails in our skies, stay up there all day. So, hello, it's not water vapor. What is it? Okay, here it goes. These are some of the toxic things that are in this that are being sprayed in planes worldwide. Um, there's ingredients that every one of these things can hurt you. Uh, barium chloride, aluminum oxide, synthetic polymers. Uh, it goes into uh, nanoparticles, uh, salts, uh, all kinds of, uh, even blood. There's even something in these uh, chemtrails that has blood, uh, as, as in the, um, when they were wow. examining what was going on, uh, they found all these uh, mold spores, uh, different kinds of aluminum-coated fiberglass, nickel, uh, polymer fibers. It goes on and on. Uh, radioactive in, uh, particles. Well, none of this is healthy, obviously, and yet it's being rained down on us every single day. Um, I go out in New York City, I look up, and lots of times I'm seeing these huge streaks of white uh, in, in the sky. That's what's raining down upon us, and it hurts our health. Uh, it yes. hurts our loved ones. And uh, personally, I've written to the Health Department of New York City and the mayor's office about this, asking them, when you please look into this, no replies, and it's been over a year, no replies whatsoever, and this is a health risk. Uh, it's an amazing cover-up of what's going on, and why won't they address this? Really good question. Uh, it's sad and scary. Um, so that's another one I want to identify, the chemtrails, and why the cover-up. Now, there are certain uh, countries, uh, like China, uh, who, who uh, have stopped these uh, chemtrails and they won't permit them in our skies. Well, why are we permitting them in our skies? 
And and by the way, who is financing this? This would cost trillions of dollars every day to spray all this. Um, I was in a train coming from Connecticut, and I happened to look up, and the sky literally was crisscrossed with these white streaks. Uh, it was clouds. It was chemtrails. And it was uh, coming from Connecticut back to New York City. And it, it really took my... My, my breath away, and it was very sad to see this happening. And nobody that I saw was looking up or, or questioning what this was in disguise. Well, we need to do that. And we need to go to the health departments and say, will you please look into this because this is wrong. It's not natural. Who's causing this and why? Okay, I want to go from here to another uh, a part of this, which is the chemtrail cover-up. Now, there's an amazing woman. I want to uh, name her. Her name is Rosalind Peterson. That's R-O-S-A-L-I-N-D, and then Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N. Look into YouTube under the chemtrail cover-up. She is an amazing researcher and has done a lot on this issue, and you should be aware of her and her research. Also, there's a website I want to give out. And that's globalengineeringwatchdog.org. Uh, I'm going to repeat that. It's all one word. There's no spaces between this. Globalengineeringwatchdog.org. That's an amazing website with the latest of what's going on with chemtrails and why we should be alarmed that they're in disguise. Well, that's a lot of concern here. But these things all are working together. Why? To hurt us. And that's quite an agenda, and we need to stop it right now. And we can. If we, if we band together, learn what we have to learn, and then spread the word. And that's what this is all about. Uh, we don't want these elite to, to kill us, our children, and our children's children for their own greed. And the fact that they think that they know best because they've got trillions of dollars and they can decide who lives and who dies. It's wrong and needs to be stopped. Now I'm going to go to another. This is, after everything I said, this is going to be a very local issue, but I, I, it bears repeating because I think that this is part of that craziness that's going on. And I'm referring to the New York City Parks Department of all things, which I always thought was a good organization. They have park rangers, and they, we, I thought that they care for the animals and that they're concerned about the health of the wildlife uh, in the parks. That's what I thought. But, hello, I learned very differently what's going on. Um, I, I loved going to the parks, uh, especially Central Park. And uh, I feed the squirrels, healthy food, and sometimes the birds. And there are people of all ages, everybody from little kids to seniors, that go there and enjoy the, the, the wildlife that's in the parks. Um, it's really the heart and soul of the parks uh, to be in a natural setting with trees and flowers and to enjoy the wildlife. And uh, for many years, that was the way things were. That's not the way things are now. Uh, if you go to the parks, it's hard to find one squirrel. 
when you used to see many scurrying around and, and having a good time and entertaining the people with their scurrying and scampering about, climbing trees and accepting your nuts or the birds, if you give them birdseed, uh, they're all grateful for, for that. Well, the reason is because they're hungry. Uh, why are they hungry? Because the Parks Department hasn't planted almost anything that will bear the kinds of food that these little critters eat. So they're constantly looking for food. And so, and here it comes, the Parks Department, once the, here it comes, has proposed a ban on feeding squirrels and birds. And they're saying that once this law is passed, if you are caught, here it comes, caught doing that, whether you are a small child, an adult, or a senior, you will be given a stiff fine and be listed as an animal abuser. I couldn't even make this up. It sounds crazy. Now, I just found out the other day. I'm sorry, Hercules? Yes, it does sound crazy. Yeah, it, it, it's like, you've got to be kidding. I mean, that's how it seems to me when I first heard of this. Now, I just found out the other day uh, from a dear colleague of mine, Anita, has said that, Nick, you're not going to believe this, but the Parks Department is now re- actively recruiting 130 more park rangers. 130. And what are they going to be doing? They'll be empowered to give out summonses once this ban is, is put into law. So what happened to the relaxing park where you could enjoy the trees and, and, and feed the animals healthy food and relax? Now people are going to be looking over their shoulder, seeing if the park rangers are looking at them, and God forbid that they give a nut to a hungry squirrel or, or some uh, uh, healthy uh, seeds to birds, and then you're going to get a summons and you're going to be fined. Uh, anywhere from 50 to a few hundred dollars for doing such a thing. Now, when you're a child and you, you are learning about birds and squirrels and, and, and loving these animals and understanding that they're trying to make it through the day just like us, uh, it, it, it teaches you compassion and love. It teaches you respect for your fellow critters on this planet. Now, when you take that away from children especially, you're depriving them of an amazing uh, uh, teaching of an an ethic of love and compassion. And without that, uh, then then killing later on, killing uh, animals with guns or whatever, uh, or or stepping on uh, little critters and killing them, is going to seem like, well, that's okay because we never learned any compassion for these animals. This is wrong, and a lot of people are getting really upset about this proposed ban on feeding uh, the, uh, uh, the wildlife in the, the parks of New York City. Right. Uh, we have, we have a, an organization that's just started. I'm one of the co-founders, and so is my dear friend Nita. It's called Friends of New York City Park Wildlife. And um, I want to ask people if they want to join us in uh, writing letters and doing demos uh, and uh, calling our our representatives and saying, this is wrong and it needs to be stopped. We don't want, we want to ban this stupid ban. The Parks Department is trying to force us to accept. It's not a law yet and we don't want it to be. 
if you want to get involved with this and you're an animal lover, uh, please, uh, you can contact me, uh, Nick, N-Y-N-Y, the figure one, at gmail.com. I'm going to repeat that. Nick, N-Y-N-Y, and the figure one, at gmail.com. And uh, I will be right back to you with where we're going to meet and when our meetings are going to be done in September. We're going to start in September. We've already got a few people that are excited about this new group. And uh, we also just learned, and you're not going to believe this, but uh, are we okay for time uh, uh, on this? We have around two more minutes, um, and uh, I'm glad we had an extended episode today. These are all interesting uh, topics worthy of uh, uh, further exploration and uh, action. So if you can send me the uh, information in a PM or an email, I'll gladly share it. I had some difficulty trying to find some of the uh, stuff on the uh, Internet while you're speaking. So if you send it to me, I'll, I'll gladly post it. Uh, will do. And what we just created is a PowerPoint slide presentation with a lot more detail about this, this work that we're doing uh, for on behalf of the little critters in the parks. And uh, once they email me, we'll, we'll send them by email the PowerPoint so they can see this information in more detail. That is awesome, Nick. And uh, this is uh, an awesome start to an awesome new uh, show. Uh, so I'm greatly honored that uh, you're doing it here on our station. Uh, we're going to take a brief break, and then we'll be back with the Proceptor Project uh, with Phoenix the Techno Druid. And Nick is the first guest on that new show. So uh, we'll have more of Nick Curto in around five minutes. Thank you, Hercules. Okay, talk to you soon. Yep. Yeah. 
in a single cup of earth Sings the mystery of the all-expanding universe Trust that brain behind your eyes To carve a space for us within the universal mind And if it's up to us to bring some balance back Let it not be said, it's courage that we lay and welcome back to Pride of Olympus. Uh, Today, I'm honored to announce uh, several new shows which are launching today. Uh, We had Myths, Legends, and Lore, uh, and our first guest being Charles Santino. Uh, Then we had Nick Curdo Presents, The Real News Revealed. And now we have The Preceptor Project, hosted by Phoenix the Techno Druid. And our first guest is Nick Curdo. Greetings and welcome, Phoenix. How are you? Not too bad. Um, I think you were announcing Nick, though. Yes, uh, Nick is uh, going to be your oh. guest today. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, things are not not going too bad, you know. Uh, I guess you could say the metaphorical land war rage is on out here. Um, a lot of a lot of bright future. There's a few storm clouds, but the fu- the future primarily is a bright place. Good. Um, okay. And one of those storm clouds, one of those storm clouds could, I guess you could be the, say, be the elephant in the room. Um, Let me know when you're ready for me to go forward with that. I'm ready for you to go forward. The scepter is yours, and Nick is here too. So uh, proceed. I'll be here in case you need me, but Nick will do great. Okay. Okay. So, um, a lot of the people, a lot of a lot of health health concerns that I'm hearing surrounding 5G, or as I was just saying, the elephant in the room, um, have to have to go around um, what's called ionizing radiation. Uh, in other words, when because of frequency or because of amplitude, when a wave has enough energy to now start knocking free molecules off of your molecule chain. Electrons out of the uh, in the case in the case of the super high frequency stuff, uh, yeah. I mean, it starts knocking electrons out of the atoms in your body, and therefore, yeah, and therefore causing uh, you know unforeseen that that is the health risk. 
in human beings that typically will develop and you know if you if you leave that type of cellular what would it be guided mutation unchecked i mean typically it turns into cancer and this is a lot of the health risk now um one thing surrounding 5g in particular that a lot of people are going just completely bonkers about myself among them for a time but um excuse me um I had to take a drink. Um, okay, so myself among them for a time. You have several weapon systems, the most notorious and unclassified of which anybody can look this up on Wikipedia, like right now if they wanted to, would be something called the active denial system. Well, we're talking about radio wave beam, we- beam weapons. The active denial system is the ultimate form of crowd control because it's going to make every nerve ending on the part of your body facing the beam feel like it's on fire. <laughs> I mean, there there have been there have been full-on Navy SEALs that have tried to, you know, no, I'm going to tough this out, man. I'm a Navy SEAL. No. They say no. And when they say no, I tend to listen. Um, yeah, questions so far? I'm fine, Nick. Do you have any questions? Um, yes, I find if I may, Phoenix. And by the way, uh, I'm so glad that I'm uh, on your program. It's an honor, and uh, much success with your new program. Uh, my, my question is: I've been seeing on the internet lately things that you can buy to help protect you from the 5G and smart meters. Um, I, I'm sure you were aware of this, and I, I, my question yeah. is, does it really protect you? Do you have any uh, information I, on this? The, I can tell you. I can tell you from a physics aspect, um, the smart meters. I mean, how? Okay, so out here, out here, you're looking at something. They've been around for about well, not a bidirectional smart meter like the one I got, um, which also I got the one that sends through the internet not through the radio system and for that very reason. Um, you, you're you're powering up something that's about like running your microwave for 30 seconds and bursting it through your house, through the people that might be in the way of that transmission, wow. and out to the truck with, with the uh, same amount of energy you're run, using to run your microwave for about 30 seconds. Oh, boy. You're, you're doing, you're doing a five-second burst transmission. No, that's no, no, no. And see, the the thing about it is everybody's, everybody's scared of radio waves. Yes, they can be hazardous. The difference in is, is that I, is it what's called ionizing radiation or non, or just stand and, you know, just standard doesn't have the power to ionize anything then, uh, or, you know, raise or lower the molecular number or the atomic number, I should say through. Yeah. We'll save the process of ionization for another a whole another topic and a whole another time. But um, ionizing radiation is the thing that hurts us. It's, it holds it holds true when it comes to 5G. Which, by the way, um, the original thing that I had read like a couple of years ago said that their that their charter called for um, range between the six gigahertz range. And, and um, I want to say 25 gigahertz, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which by way of comparison, the, that army weapon that I was just describing, um, that is, uh, you're looking at about 10,000 watts of transmission power 
I mean, you know, take that, take that to your local uh, radio club, and you know, ask how far will a watt of transmission power get me? That's about 10,000. You know, everything you could expect to mount to a Humvee by way of generators and alternators to generate as much electricity as you can dump out that antenna. Effectively, is what it is. And so far, that's uh, from what I'm hearing. It's like uh, I want to say about 10,000 watts. 10 to 25,000 watts um, on the on that on that vehicle, and that as that as a good example of ionizing radiation. Um, we we encounter through the sun, which is generating all sorts of radio light gamma. Well, gamma rays would be a little bit hard uh, at this at this stage in the sun's evolution, but. Um, yeah, we're constantly being hit by waves at all sorts of different frequencies all the time. So, um, yeah, as a technology, where that's going to hurt us is when it starts knocking. When, when Here might also be a better way to explain it that's going to tie a couple of things together. Now, you guys back in, well, I'm pretty sure you guys deal with a lot of, you guys got eight, ten, Eight, sometimes 12 people to our one, depending on the location, whether you're in New York or New Jersey. Um, I would imagine there's a fair, fair smatter, smattering of um, radio enthusiasts, amateur radio enthusiasts, right? Yes. So, so you, go, you go in there, and when they talk about the 11-meter wave, and this will help everybody understand it. They talk about an 11-meter wave. Well, okay, so just by memorization, I can tell you that's 25 to 30 megahertz, probably 27. That's most typically the citizen band radio service. Um, but the, when okay, so when you're current, when you're trying to figure out the when you're trying to figure out a the the length of a wave. To when they say an 11-meter wave, they're taking the speed of light. Which is, a, which is the speed of radio travel, radio wave travels in a vacuum. They're taking the speed of light, uh, 186,000 miles a second, only they break it into kilometers. And I, I want to say just for the sake of rounding, let's say that's 300,000 kilometers a second. Um, now, you, multi, you divide that by the amount of vibrations, the amount of hertz, hertz 1HZ, is a full cycle mid to up to down to mid is a full, that yeah that's a full cycle of a wave so when you're to, when they're talking about oh that's the 11 meter band they're talking about your frequency is such to where if you take the whole the length light travels over a second cut it down to however many equal groups here's the here's going to be the distance of that wave of that individual wave Okay, so stuff stuff until you start getting into the in, now power and amplitude aside, transmission power and amplitude aside, um, if your if your wave is going to get down to a point where it will harm, then you're you're looking at like this is why everybody's so worried about these millimeter waves. And 5G, the 5G charter has expanded. It's not only up to 25 gigahertz. They're thinking of pushing it all the way up to 300. By way of comparison, I'm trying to get I'm trying to get a uh, vendor setup going at Roden Schwarz. They're a pretty, I guess, national well, international radio supplier. Um, yeah. By way of comparison, well, I, I just totally lost one thought on the way to the other. 
Any questions so far? Don't worry about it. I'm still okay. I'm not an engineer. I don't have the scientific or engineering background uh, uh, that you have, uh, but I'm following the gist of what uh, you're saying, but I have no questions yet. Okay. So, yeah. Nicholas? Yeah, no, I figure out. So, yeah, so just, uh, if I may, Phoenix, just so that uh, one of the things I, I saw was um, a kind of a hood device that they say to put over your smart meter so that those waves won't uh, affect you. Is that viable? Is that is that a good product? And just Is there any data yet on that? Um, put, okay, so to I would imagine. Okay, I would imagine there's uh, metal inside of these inside of these hoods at mm-hmm. some point, okay. whether it's a foil or whatever. So. Yeah, it must be. Yeah. Um, essentially, what you're doing is you're putting you're putting a Faraday cage around your um, around the transmitter in your thing, which uh, you know it would do you. I guess it would. You know, I haven't even heard of the things yet. But I mean, uh, look, looking at what you have explained, then yeah, I mean, you're 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 simply blocking the transmission by grounding it out. So you're everything's exactly just going to be hunky dory until that guy reads by drives by to read your meter. Right, and the other thing I wanted to bring up was here in New York City in Manhattan, I'm seeing aerials more than I've ever seen in my life. Aerials on buildings block to block to block, not one aerial on a building. Uh, 10, 15, and it's just yeah. like I'm thinking, oh, my God, the people that are across from that aerial on the other building or underneath that aerial on the building itself, and it, are they in any uh, physical danger? Are they getting headaches or worse, do you suppose? Um, that would be something. Okay, so, uh, you know, I'm I with science, I try to be com- – science as a topic isn't completely neutral. Thusly, so shall I be. Um, so I, you know, I try to be completely neutral with science. Now, I can tell you that in physics, um, if you have like, uh, if you have, um, it's the same thing they make mylar, the same process they make mylar. Okay. If you have that kind of window tinting that involves any type of metal particulate, then essentially you're gonna you're gonna be bouncing that signal right back at the transmitter or often some sort of a weird pool table. You know, if you're lucky, a snooker game, not just a standard eight ball pool game. Now, if you're, you know, it's going to bounce off of two or three things before it gets to where it's going. Um, yes, they can protect themselves. Uh, it's best. It would be best to do so with a Faraday cage. Are they being affected? I have no idea. This is, you know, this sounds like a great foot mission for some time. You know, go, yes, up, go up and absolutely. actually ask these people. But, you know, Phoenix, i got to say, too, that on this subject, think of it. We're being put in a position of protecting ourselves and our children and our babies and our wives and husbands. We're being put in a position of protecting ourselves from this technology. What is wrong with that picture? Everything. Everything. Yes. Um, I'm I'm shocked that uh, the, people aren't um, storming the gates saying, keep this out of our neighborhood, keep this out of our state. And uh, I think the media is, is really, again, who's signing the checks? You're not seeing the media reporting the dangers no. at all. Of course, and that, that's, that's not a good job. 
you know it's it's not telling the it's not telling the truth it's not giving us the whole picture of what we need to know and uh yeah. and they're really aggressively doing this i mean they even had an astronaut on tv i can't think of his name and he was saying this is a good thing cuz i'm an astronaut and i should know <laughs> it's like what anyhow it was like Saturday night live i do know it was like a Saturday Night Live uh, a sitcom of that. You're thinking, am I hearing this correctly? You know, and, and, and really, uh, if, I don't know about uh, where you are, but the uh, the media here and all the commercials on TV talking about how wonderful the 5G technology is. I mean, okay, so I guess let's look at the things that's going that it's got going for it. I mean, um, we always try to, and I'm going to try to, it's like, try to start a tradition here on the perceptor show okay. um, what's the problem and then what can you know and then at some point in the show what can we do about it okay Fair um, enough. as far as far as 5g goes if you know it's kind of like nuclear nuclear on board a spaceship is a great idea 5g um transferring a huge data packet to a plane or a car or you know or it was especially with that 3D beam forming. Now you see all those antennas that are the, the square, long rectangular antennas, about five, six feet tall. Yes. That sit on the, and there's like 12 or 14 of them. Yes. Sitting on uh, sitting on on the towers. Okay, so the new uh, that that is a 14. Okay, so one of the one of the technologies that's got going for it is called massive MIMO, which means massive multi-input, multi-output. Well, it should be called MIMOS because multi-input, multi-output synchronous. Um, another thing, okay, so instead of instead of 12 to 16 antennas there, which should be enough, no, no, these these boxes have like 250. Now, what what they're what they're using this to accomplish, or at least what the thought process is, is um, uh, 3D beam forming. Meaning, um, if if you are if you in comparison, you walking down the sidewalk in comparison to the tower, are at a at an azimuth of um, let's say negative 45, which would be a 45 degree down angle, and 230 degrees. Uh, the closest the closest antenna to the one that is shooting directly at you. Or bouncing off of a building. This is um, this is called scatterback, as the technology there. Or if it's bouncing off a building. Now, to answer your question in the most direct way, fi- okay, so 5G, if they run it as it is designed, which means every one of those little booster stations that's sitting on top of your street light is uh, is broadcasting with no more than um, 500 milliwatts. Which, by way of comparison, you know those uh, little uh, bubble pack radios that you get at Walmart that advertise 25 miles? But, uh, yeah, right, guys. Uh, maybe on the moon where there's no <laughs> interference. But, yeah, those ones that are, I believe it's the 470, 472 or 478 megahertz is what those FR, those are called FRS radios, by the way. Um, I'm about ready to go get a the FCC license for a general mobile radio service, which is the commercial end of those little bubble pack radios that you get at Walmart. Um, now, if you have now, if you have each one of your little transmitters, 
transmitting no more power comparatively than uh, you remember those four four point seven five megahertz walkie talkies from I guess when we were all kids because they were they've been around for a good long time but those little five megahertz walkie four point seven five five megahertz walkie talkies that they would do great for about a hundred feet mm-hmm. yep and then they just fell yeah. Uh, that's that is also, or one of your FRS radios transmitting at full power, full FRS power is also 500 500 milliwatts. If you're transmit, if you're doing it at that angle, or not at that angle, at that amplitude, and you're doing stuff like angling your transmission beam instead of scattering it all around, pardon pardon me from hell to breakfast and back. Um, oh. And expecting expecting the person on the other on the listening end to not get an echo, guys, physics. Um, so, but no, um, yeah, you're you're so you're you're with with those two technologies, it's a great thing. At at the strengths that they're talking about, from building to building, would be a great thing since nobody's going to be up on the roof. Make sure that this system is safety is safety locked where it can't also make sure that you're going you know when you well you have your big building well you have your big 50-story skyscraper in in the city transmitting across to someplace uh let's say in hoboken um then you know trans do beam do antenna to antenna not or like and like i was saying antenna to plane antenna to zeppelin antenna to boat I'd be kind of shaky about antenna to car, but it's there's usually there's still enough metal in them to where it shouldn't have a health effect if you do it that way. But um, antenna, uh, cell phone antenna to human, guy, uh, you know, computer, dude, we are made out of eighty-eight percent water. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah, yeah. I mean, not only is it knocking genes out of sequence, which I mean, the the sunlight does that when you get a really good sunburn. Um, uh, okay, so and, and I mean, there's there is the there there. Have you said have you guys had uh, actually had a chance to sit down and talk to a, one of these former technicians? And I mean, one that really knows his stuff, not somebody that was pretending to be like a Verizon cell phone power tech or something. Mm-hmm. I have not, however, um, because this is an issue. Uh, it is being spoken about in like different service organizations and business associations in the area. So I plan on educating myself a bit more. Uh, some people that I've engaged in conversation that do know a thing or three, uh, you know, they were promoting the good aspects of this and I'll have them on the show just so we get a fuller uh, picture. Uh, but uh, at this point I have to claim my ignorance. <laughs> so I'm learning a lot by hearing both of you speak tonight. Well, I got to say, guys, that I was a couple of weeks ago, me and uh, Hal, my partner, went to a demo, uh, a small demo, unfortunately, uh, in the West Village of Manhattan. And it was a demo uh, against 5G uh, technology. And uh, the uh, health expert, Gary Knoll, uh, was there. And he gave an impassioned 25-minute speech about the dangers of, of this again he's a health expert he has uh, millions of followers uh, has had that for many yeah. many years and he was a, a very good speaker uh, very convincing and he was just saying uh, you cannot trust 
what they're saying about 5G and the, the smart meters. You cannot begin to trust this because it's not a health uh, something that's going to be good for your health or or for babies too because babies are very susceptible to these waves. Uh, Phoenix, uh, if you want to bear me out on that, yeah. But, but uh, that's another concern. You know, you can't have babies in the kitchen and then using your microwave all the time. You know, there's, there's things you just can't do. And as you're identifying, these waves are much stronger, and there's nothing to protect you from them unless you uh, equip your apartment or your home with what you were mentioning, these things to, to block these, 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 these waves. See, if you have that little metal screen on the front door of your microwave, that's not going to really uh, – now, the ones where you just got those little wires and that's supposed to stop um, – and that's supposed to stop all the – micro. that's supposed to stop the 1,000 watts of, my, of uh, 2.4 gigahertz transmission that's happening inside of there. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's definitely a problem there. The ones that actually look like a Faraday cage, yes, that stand a better chance of grounding it, but you're right. You're still going to have that stray wave. Now, um, as, as, as the first perceptor, um, you know, one thing, one thing I'm going to say uh, that we should do is we should all look at things from every angle possible. It's like Hercules was just saying. Um, yeah, look at things from every angle possible. Um, now, we know we shouldn't have to, like, uh, walk around with a Faraday cage or – one of those uh, metal ponchos or with survival ponchos in your pocket. Yep. Just just to block the waves because um, our technology has evolved into uh, using using a particular bandwidth of them. I mean, just guys, guys, guys in the design room, go a little bit further. Use something called um, oh gosh, it's a basis technology for fiber. Um, that's where they, instead of having a, instead of having an antenna, they have a laser diode, you know, start well, transmitting it that way. We're going to have to, on that have note, to. Uh, end our adventure for today. Uh, that was an awesome episode, uh, Phoenix. I'm looking forward to the uh, preceptor project uh, growing and developing, and I'm greatly honored that uh, it's happening here. Um, we have about a minute left. Oh, I'd like too. for both of you to share your content. Uh, so, Phoenix, how can people uh, get in touch with you and become a part of Project Preceptor? Um, well, okay, so first, uh, my, my my business cell phone is 801-860-5883. Send it a text message first. Um, second, facebook.com forward slash ROR Preceptor Project, as um, you had in the post. Um, and actually, as far as like a, a way, all those things, all, all the all those links that you dropped in the post would be a great way of getting hold. Just remember, guys, uh, if you're looking for Perceptor, follow it to the Perceptor page. Um, yeah. Very awesome. Yes, and Nick keep... Curto, how can people uh, find out more about you and the Disclosure Network that you so wonderfully uh, my, work with? The you? Disclosure Network, uh, I'm going to give you, it's a simple uh, ID for the website. It's simply D-N-N-Y dot info. And, of course, that stands for Disclosure Network New York. So just simply D-N-N-Y dot info. And we've got an amazing speaker coming up. Uh, she is uh, an a- a- abductee and a contactee. And her stories are amazing. She's our guest coming up 
the second Sunday of September, and I urge you to come to the meeting and to listen to what her adventures have been. It's quite, it's quite amazing. And I've been there. I can vouch for it. They're going to cut us off in 10 seconds, so I'll be bidding everybody good night. Thank you, gentlemen. This was an awesome show. Good luck, Phoenix, Definitely. with your new show. Amazing. Thank you. And thank you guys, for home. Until next time, this is the Perceptor Project. Nick Curto presents, and um, the uh, uh, myths, legends, and lore wish you all joyous journeys and happy adventures. Who am I? What am I? Where did I come Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journeys be joyous. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.